Welcome back to The Best Movies. I'm Ro Khan, radio talk show host in Chicago, and he is Richard Roper, film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times, former co-host of Ebert and Roper. In this episode, we're going to look at Oscar snubs. I know you don't love the term snub, Richard, but I think it applies. Well, to me, snub always sounds like something out of a scene from Mean Girls or, you know, when you put somebody in the locker right before homecoming and lock them in the locker and go, oh, you've been snubbed. But that's the term everybody uses. We thought we'd talk about uh, some of the all-time great faux pas, miscues, snubs, if you will, Roe. And the, the timing here is, is, I think, apt because the Academy has recently announced they have pushed back the Oscars. The 2021 Oscars will now be on April 25th. This is unique, and we're living in unique times. So the films that will be eligible for the 2021 ceremony, anything released between January 1st, 2020, and February 28th, 2021, that's about a 14-month period, that includes films that will have been released in theaters, will come out in theaters, also movies that were scheduled to be released theatrically, row, but they came out on home video platforms. That includes films such as Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, quite a few other films that will be coming out. Those are eligible for Oscars as well. It's fun to look at this list of Oscar snubs. We're going to start with not even nominated. Just amazing some of these actors and actresses who did not get even a nod for performances that are now considered legendary. And let's start in the most recent past from 2016 to Raji P. Henson, Hidden Figures. Where the hell have you been? Everywhere I look, you're not where I need you to be. It's not my imagination. Now, where the hell do you go every day? To the bathroom, sir. To the bathroom. To the damn bathroom. For 40 minutes a day? What are you doing there? We're T-minus zero here. I put a lot of faith in you. There's no bathroom for me here. What do you mean there's no bathroom for you here? There is no bathroom. There are no colored bathrooms in this building or any building outside the West Campus, which is half a mile away. Did you know that? I have to walk to Timbuktu just to relieve myself. And I can't use one of the handy bikes. Picture that, Mr. Harrison. My uniform, skirt below my knees, my heels, and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. And I work like a dog, day and night, living off a of coffee from a pot none of you want to touch. So, excuse me if I have to go to the restroom a few times a day. Such a wonderful, strong, powerful performance in such an important but also entertaining movie role, which did very, very well. In 2016, it was a big commercial hit. Now, you're a NASA buff, so you can probably speak a little bit to what this film was all about and these characters, including Taraji's, who were based on real-life figures, correct? Right. These were real-life people. As a matter of fact, one of them just recently passed away, the real-life person. It's the story of African-American women who were great mathematicians who were hired by NASA to do these calculations so that the space program could actually work. And they essentially hid these women in a closet, literally and figuratively, mm -hmm. because there was such racism in the South where their office was. And that the scene we just heard a clip from is an Oscar type of performance. I mean, there are certain scenes in certain movies where you go, oh, yeah, nominated there. And she knocks it out of the park. 
very different story, but it reminds me a little bit of the scene in Aaron Brockovich where Julia Roberts reads the riot act to the new hotshot attorneys that have joined in on the case. And it's just one of those showcase full page of a monologue. And Taraji P. Henson, who's such a versatile actress because she can play the most modern of characters, of course, as she did on Empire and she's done in a lot of recent films, but also just has that timeless quality of a great actress as we see in this period piece. Astonishing to me that she wasn't nominated, Rogo. And from 2015, Charlize Theron, Mad Max, Fury Road. You said a few vehicles in pursuit. Well, I got unlucky. The journey is a really treacherous one. She still has one last shot to create some sort of meaning in her life. They're looking for hope. What about you? Redemption. You know, we've seen in the superhero movies of the last uh, several years so many great female superhero characters like Wonder Woman, Gal Gadot, and Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow, several others. Uh, This is not a superhero, but Charlize Theron and Mad Max Fury Road certainly should have her own action figure because this is maybe the best action film of the last 10 years. A great, great film, Mad Max Fury Road, with all those practical effects. And Tom Hardy, of course, who's the the co-star with Charlize is great, but she really carries this film. I mean, she is, she reminds me a little bit of the Sigourney Weaver, how she was the champion of the Aliens franchise. You know, the real superstar hero, badass. Look, Charlize Theron's an Oscar winner. Uh, she can do everything. She can play the beautiful romantic lead here in this kind of stripped down action figure performance. She was brilliant. So let's go back in time. This one is unbelievable. Not even nominated for an Oscar. Humphrey Bogart from the Maltese Falcon. I ought to have more than 10000 Of course, sir. You understand this is the first payment. Later. Oh, yes. Later you give me millions. But uh, how's about 15000 now? Frankly and candidly. On my word of honor as a gentleman, 10000 is all the money I can raise. But you didn't say positively. We've talked about this film a couple of times already on past podcasts, Rowan. As you know, this is a personal favorite of mine. I used to watch it on the late night movie growing up. And to me, of all the Humphrey Bogart performances, Sam Spade and the Maltese Falcon was the perfect marriage of actor and role. The film noir anti-hero. Yes, Angel, I'm going to send you over. Chances are you'll get off with life. That means if you're a good girl, you'll be out in 20 years. I'll be waiting for you. If they hang you, I'll always remember you. This is one of many examples in your list of not even nominated Oscar snubs that falls into the category of a performance that stood the test of time. This is a performance by Humphrey Bogart that people have emulated for the last 80 years. I've heard from so many actors through the years, either on the record or off the record, talk about the Humphrey Bogart and Jack Nicholson performances that inform them, in particular character actors who have had the chance to play leading men because of people like Humphrey Bogart and then after him Jack Nicholson, who don't look like Cary Grant or George Clooney but still can carry a film. You go to Hollywood to this day, you know, they have all those kind of souvenir shops and stuff, and you'll see 
replicas of the actual Maltese Falcon, which is, you know, Hitchcock used that term MacGuffin for the one object that everybody is kind of going after, but really is just an excuse for us to meet these characters. The Maltese Falcon itself is the ultimate MacGuffin, and Bogart as Sam Spade and all the great supporting actors he played off of, which he was in a lot of other movies with. We're talking about, you know, Sidney Greenstreet and, and Peter Laurie. He's just so good and so smooth and so real. It's such an authentic performance. 1941, Roe, as you know, back in the 30s especially, you had that kind of over-the-top you know, performance in a lot of films where everybody had that kind of mid-Atlantic accent and was really you know, reaching for the, for the last row of the theater. And in The Maltese Falcon, Bogart is authentic in a way that even actors in 2020 hope to get to that point in their acting ability that they could feel that natural on screen. And then a year later, Casablanca comes out and Ingrid Bergman gets ripped off. She does not get nominated for Best Actress. The day you left Paris, if you knew what I went through, if you knew how much I loved you, how much I still love you. We know that Casablanca won for Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Director. Bogey was nominated. Ingrid Bergman was not nominated, but to go back to that term, it wasn't as much of a snub. She was nominated for playing Maria in For Whom the Bell Tolls from the same year. Now, you can be nominated in separate categories. We saw that recently with Scarlett Johansson. You can be nominated for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress. You can't be nominated twice in the same category. That was true then and now. You Because there probably would have been a couple of years where the nominees would have been Meryl Streep, Meryl Streep, and Meryl Streep. So you can only have one performance in each uh, category. So she was nominated for Maria in For Whom the Bell Tolls. Now let me ask you a question, Rokan. When's the last time you watched For Whom the Bell Tolls? Isn't that the point? I watch Casablanca probably twice a year. As you've so aptly put it, certain films just stand the test of time, and a lot of films, for whatever reason, maybe sometimes it has to do with licensing or distribution or gosh knows what, but I mean, I can't tell you. I know I saw For Whom the Bell Tolls, I think, in a film class, uh, which was in 1942 as well, but we don't want to talk about that, but uh, I, I can't tell you the last time I've seen it. And speaking of movies that you watch once or twice a year, It's a Wonderful Life from 1946. Donna Reed, not nominated. Mary, who's down there with you? It's George Bailey, Mother. George Bailey? What's he want? I don't know. What do you want? Me? Not a thing. I I just came in to get warm. He's making violent love to me, Mother. You tell him to go right back home, and don't you leave the house either. Sam Wainwright promised to call you from New York tonight. What's your mother made? You know, I, I didn't come here to... What did you come here for, then? I don't know. You tell me. You're supposed to be the one that has all the answers. You tell me. Why don't you go home? That's where I'm going. I don't know why I came here in the first place. Good night. Good night. Mary, where's your nomination? You know, we all see this movie at, you know, at least once a year around the holidays. And, and Jimmy Stewart, of course, is the lead and carries the film. And Donna Reed, Rowe, I think would have been a supporting actress nominee because when you think about it, she's not in the center part of the film except for at the very end when we find out that she was an old maid and never married. I mean, there's a lot of scenes just with Jimmy Stewart, which I love because, by the way, Donna Reed was 25 years old when she played that character. And according to the alternate universe of It's a Wonderful Life, because George never met her, she never married, and she was considered an old maid. And they made her look like an old maid because they gave her glasses and put her hair in a bun. But 
Donna Reed is the heart and soul of this movie. Mary, at the beginning of the film, George is throwing the temper tantrum and he's telling Uncle Billy someone's going to jail and it's not going to be him. And he's yelling at Zuzu's teacher. And Mary's the one holding the kids together, putting up the tinsel on the Christmas tree. And Mary's the one that then goes out looking for George. And then, spoiler alert, she's the one that marshals the troops and saves his ass, quite frankly, and gets all the money that they come in at the end, which, by the way, was a lot more than eight grand. I always wondered if they gave the excess back there. But Donna Reed is, is, is the, you know, the, the warm heart of this film, and it's astonishing to me that she didn't get a nomination. This movie did not really do well when it came out. The reason that it is such a classic now, it went into public domain. So nobody had the rights to it. PBS started running it every Christmas time because they didn't have to pay for it. People kept seeing it. It's a beautiful, heartwarming movie. Great performances, really well directed. But it came out in an era in which that sort of sentiment wasn't popular. It was right after World War II. There was a darkness that had descended on the culture. You know, it's a great point. You know, they, you know, Frank Capra, the famous director, of course, when they called his films Capricorn, that was not a compliment. You know, films like this and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which, of course, have stood the test of time. And, you know, you mentioned all the, the public domain thing, and it was a shame for a while there because some of the worst prints in the world were being shown on television. Now we get to see a lot more pristine versions of It's a Wonderful Life. In fact, in Chicago, folks know of the famous Music Box Theater, and they actually show it on the big screen there complete with a, an organ player and there's Christmas carols and people do the kind of participation thing. They hiss at Mr. Potter. They jingle little bells. And it's just, it's such a great experience. If you get a chance wherever you live and they're showing it in a theater around the holidays, go with the family. It will be an experience you'll treasure. And you'll still be saying to yourself, I can't believe Donna Reed didn't get a nomination. Those guys were right. Well, if it's hard to believe that Donna Reed didn't get a nomination, how about this? Judy Garland for The Wizard of Oz. She had a musical number in that film, I believe, Ro. Didn't she? Kind of a showcase number. This might be the most shocking one on the list, where even though I know it to be true, I had to like triple check. Consider the fact that Renee Zellweger just won Best Actress Academy Award for playing Judy Garland. Judy Garland didn't even get nominated. She subsequently did. But when you talk about the greatest musicals or even the greatest films of all time, you don't get more than 10 or 15 films down the list before someone's going to mention The Wizard of Oz. Sunday night was always seemed to be when they would show The Wizard of Oz when we were growing up anyway. And with commercial breaks, you'd have to go straight to school because it'd be Monday morning by the time it was over. If there's ever an actress and a role in a movie that are just known to everybody, people that don't go to movies, people that say, I don't care about movies, I don't know who the movie stars are, if you said to anybody who's breathing pretty much on this planet, hey, who was in The Wizard of Oz? They're probably not going to say Burt Lahr. That's not an insult to the cowardly lion. I'm just saying it's a Judy Garland movie. And since we're talking about movies that people watch over and over and over again, Singing in the Rain, remember that? That was a big one. Remember the actual song, Singing in the Rain? Gene Kelly does not get nominated for Singing in the Rain. Dancing and singing in the rain. 
Singing in the Rain is routinely and uniformly chosen as the greatest musical of all time. It is often on the list of the 10 best movies. It's a really, really great film. It was nominated for Best Original Score, and I think Gene Hagen got a nomination for Best Supporting Actress, and that was it. An incredible slight, Gene Kelly, one of our great, most likable leading men, Ro. Nobody ever had a bad word to say about Gene Kelly, right? No matter the quality of the material, whether you saw him on TV shows as a, as a guest or you saw him in the movies, he just had that affability, that likability. But then when he started dancing, he was like infused with this complete, gorgeous, unique spirit. I have a theory about this, however. Gene Kelly was not overwhelmingly beloved in Hollywood itself, in the business. He was an exacting director. He was an exacting choreographer. His co-stars did not always get along well with him. And the movie itself, Singing in the Rain, takes a real shot at Hollywood. Studio executives and publicists and the business of movie making is on trial. That's a great point. I think that's absolutely why it didn't get more nominations. And now you're telling me that when I used to see Gene Kelly on the old Tonight Show with Johnny Carson or The Match Game or something, that it was all an act? Is that what you're telling me? I'm sure he was a lovely man. It was just tough to work for. Listen, we hear that about a lot of actors and directors to this day who are perfectionists, some of the best in the world, and they'll admit it. We just went through this when we watched The Last Dance with Michael Jordan. Some of the best are sometimes not your best friends. And now to another series of movies that people watch over and over and over again, the Godfather movies. Let's start with uh, the Diane Keaton performance in Godfather Part Two. Row In the original Godfather, Diane Keaton's K was almost a traditional romantic lead. You know, she was very in this idyllic romance with Michael and fell in love with him. And remember, he says, you can ask me this one time about the business, but she's literally almost on the other side of the door for most of the movie. In Godfather Part Two. We go in a, in, a, in a much different direction because she asserts herself and she's tired of this life and she shocks him with some of the things she tells him. And it's a real showcase for Diane Keaton, who, of course, is a, is a great actress and has been for all these years, but really an early role that demonstrated her dramatic chops. I didn't want your son, Michael. I wouldn't bring another one of your sons into this world. It was an abortion, Michael. It was a son, a son, and I had it killed because this must all end. And then there's John Cazale, also not nominated, even though in his very short career, he was in five films, four of which were nominated for Best Picture. I've been kind of campaigning in a way for the late John Cazale on social media in recent months, Ro, because there's this shorthand, you know, where people have now used Fredo as this derogatory term for the weaker son or the weaker brother. And it's, you know, it's become this kind of slight. And that's an insult in a way to the completeness of the performance from John Cazale in this film. He's there's so much more than just the one scene where he blows up at Michael, whether it's the scenes in, in Vegas where he can't control his wife. But the tenderness he displays with his nephew, and he's going to take him fishing again, and then he doesn't take him fishing, and he's such a tragic character. And it's a performance that's much more than just the shorthand of Fredo. You're my kid brother, and you take care of me? Did you ever think about that? Did you ever once think about that? Send Fredo off to do this. Send Fredo off to do that. Let Fredo take care of some Mickey Mouse nightclub somewhere. Send Fredo to pick somebody up at the airport. 
I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it. There are times when leading men get snubbed. There are two classics here. And I know you're going to love this, Richard, because he's your friend and you love him. Robert Downey Jr. for Iron Man. They say the best weapon is one you never have to fire. I respectfully disagree. I prefer the weapon you only have to fire once. That's how Dad did it. That's how America does it. And it's worked out pretty well so far. I've long maintained that the Robert Downey Jr. character of Tony Stark slash Iron Man is one of the most fascinating in all the superhero universes, mainly because he's always Tony Stark. He doesn't turn green and blow up. He doesn't, you know, have this complete transformation. He's the same guy. And, you know, he doesn't have superpowers. He didn't get bit by a spider. He didn't come in from some planet and get raised by a lovely family in the Midwest. But in reality, he can, you know, dodge speeding bullets and all that stuff. He's Iron Man because he's not Iron Man. He was brilliant through this performance arc, playing a guy who was reborn, not just through being Iron Man, but learning how to fall in love and learning the power of trust and friendship. And how this happened, Cary Grant snubbed for North by Northwest. Cary Grant was such a great actor, and like a lot of great actors and actresses who are just strikingly beautiful, handsome people, it takes us a while to get past that and say, wow, there's real acting going on there. That's, that's the same in 1959 as it is right now in 2020 where the good-looking actors and actresses have to gain the weight or make themselves look hideous or have some sort of affliction, and then all of a sudden be, oh, they're good actors. Well, guess what? Cary Grant was great in North by Northwest. Do you think these guys were too pretty to be taken seriously? That is a truism that holds to this day, Ro, where we've seen actors and actresses who are so strikingly otherworldly, handsome, and beautiful that even their peers are kind of slow to catch on to how great they are as actors. I mean, you think of somebody like Robert Redford. I always tell this, and this is no slight to Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill has two Oscar nominations in his career. Robert Redford has one at this point. So, you know, Redford's a classic example, and we've seen other actors like just recently Brad Pitt winning. But Cary Grant was so good and so subtle But, again, he was so handsome. I think a lot of times people thought, oh, he's just Cary Grant. He just shows up, and they put the suit on him, and he looks great. But there's so much more to his performance in this great film. You listen to me. I'm an advertising man, not a red herring. I've got a job, a secretary, a mother, two ex-wives, and several bartenders dependent upon me. And I don't intend to disappoint them all by getting myself slightly killed. I don't think Cary Grant ever got credit for his range. He could play farce comedy or dark suspense and in this movie he was an action hero really the progenitor to the james bond movies because mgm which first green lit dr no for sean connery got the money to launch the bond franchise based on the success of north by northwest when we talk about the great movie stars of all time again he's always on the short list and he had two nominations for roles back in the 40s The Academy finally had to make good, if you will, do the mulligan and give him the honorary Oscar. They finally got, I believe, in 1970, Row, But at least they did that. I give him credit for that. But North by Northwest, I know, is maybe your favorite movie. It's got a special place in your heart. Yeah, it absolutely does. It's a great travelogue of America. Starts in New York, takes you out to Long Island. Then it comes back to New York City, takes you on a train to Chicago. Then it takes you to Mount Rushmore. And at every step, they're actually in the real locations, except for the crop duster scene, which they shot in California. 
it's an amazingly fun ride, but it's also really an intimate film. People should see it. If they have not seen it or haven't seen it in a long time, watch it again. It really stands up. And it is available on a lot of uh, on-demand platforms. You know, we've talked about how some of these films that were going to be theatrical releases and are now coming to home video, a lot of them are like 20 bucks because they're saying, hey, listen, we got to make some money here. You can watch it with the family. A lot of these great classics you can get for more like $2.99 on a lot of the platforms. And it will be money well spent if you check out North by Northwest and the great Cary Grant. And from another wildly popular action film, Die Hard, Alan Rickman, who plays one of the best bad guys of all time, does not get nominated. Oh, the late, great Alan Rickman. And Die Hard is another repeat. And it's a Christmas movie, let's face it. A lot of us like to watch it around the holidays, and it plays all the time. And it is the movie that you know confirmed Bruce Willis as a mega movie star. And then he did 174 sequels to Die Hard, but nothing matches the original and, Ro, you're such a huge James Bond fan, and I feel the same way with movies like this. These movies are only as good as the villain. You've got to have a villain who's the equal of the hero. Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber, even though he's a horrible, robbing, thieving, murderous, terrorist, jerko, you just love the guy. I mean, you just love every inch of that performance from Alan Rickman. Mr. Mr. Guest. Still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open a front door for me. I'm afraid not. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Another Tour de Force performance that totally got overlooked was R. Lee Ermey from Full Metal Jacket in 1987. What have we got here? A fucking comedian, private joker. I admire your honesty. Hell, I like you. You can come over to my house and fuck my sister. <clears throat> you little scumbag. I got your name. I got your ass. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Now get up. Get on your feet. Ro, we've talked about this film and this performance in previous podcasts, but I think along with the Alan Rickman performance, which came a year later in Die Hard, those are two of the most outstanding supporting performances of that entire decade. And I think people are shocked to find out that neither Alan Rickman nor Arlie Ermey was nominated he became a very good friend of yours, and he, he did other things and played different characters, but the character he created for Full Metal Jacket, he would kind of do that guy when he would do radio interviews, and he'd insult the host, or when he was on talk shows. I mean, when he walked in, to, we used to do, you know, we did so many things with him. You did so much with him, but every time you'd see him, you'd like, oh, man, here comes Gunny. I'm in trouble now. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. He kind of really was that guy, and as the story goes, he was really instrumental in creating that character, changing that character from the way that Stanley Kubrick saw that character originally when they were writing and in pre-production for Full Metal Jacket. And then by the time they actually got on the set and they started doing it, that character became what Lee wanted that character to be. And that's why I think it is so authentic and such a great performance because there really is a part of him in that. Could you just imagine Stanley Kubrick, who comes from such a different universe than Harley Ermey? And I could just picture him, you know, and this was part of the genius of 
Stanley Kubrick in recognizing what he had there. It was like the first time he probably thought of the monolith for 2001 A Space Odyssey. Behold this. There's nothing else like this in the universe. I'm going to make this work for my movie. What a great performance. And in this moment of American history, this is an important point to make. We mentioned Taraji P. Henson getting missed for Hidden Figures earlier. But there are three performances we're going to talk about from African-American actors that did not get nominated. And the politics, I think, of the time, including modern day, were at play. It's arguable that David Oyelowo from Selma not getting nominated was the beginning of Oscars Too White. Film from 2014 that did pretty well, actually, and and of course should have because it's a great, great masterpiece of a biopic about Dr. Martin Luther King, who has been portrayed in, in a number of television and film performances. I think this is the best of them. If you hadn't had the chance to check out David Oyelowo in Selma, please do. And I agree, Ro. I think that was the beginning where people, you know, you look back now and I think people who do see it, they go, oh, well, of course he was nominated, right? And he wasn't, and he should have been, and it was a mistake. I am appealing to men and women of God and goodwill everywhere. White black and otherwise if you believe all are created equal come to selma join us join our march against injustice and inhumanity we need you to stand with us and then you go back more than 50 years to sydney poitier in in the heat of the night which was a really important film about black empowerment in the 1960s and he doesn't get nominated and it's probably his best performance When I examined the deceased, it was obvious that the fatal blow was struck from an angle of 17 degrees from the right, which makes it almost certain the person who did it is right-handed. So what? Old Harv's left-handed, Chief. Everybody in town knows that. Yeah, uh, that's what we figured out, Chief. Uh, Harvey's a lefty, Uh uh-huh. Well, you're pretty sure of yourself, ain't you, Virgil? Virgil, that's a funny name for a big boy that comes from Philadelphia. What do they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. I would agree it's his best performance, and it's sort of, I don't know if you want to call it the irony, because that's exactly what the film was about, and then when it came time to honor the film, it gets nominated for Best Picture and Best Director and Best Screenplay and Best Editing, and Rod Steiger gets nominated for Best Actor, and he won, as did the picture and the screenplay, and Sidney Poitier's name was not even on the list of nominated films even though you know they call me Mr. Tibbs in the sequels. you know He is really the, the heart and soul of that film, it's a crime that he wasn't nominated for that performance in 1967. And then Denzel Washington for Philadelphia, because this is where it really gets interesting. As Rod Steiger was kind of the racist cop who then has a change of heart, you also have Denzel Washington as sort of a bigoted lawyer, not exactly sure if he wants to represent a gay client who then has a turn of heart in a beautiful performance. I would agree, Ro. I mean, listen, no slight at all. Tom Hanks won the Academy Award, and it was a brave and bold and groundbreaking performance in a very special and important film. We're talking 1993, folks. It's a very different time. We had a lot of enlightenment coming our way. We still do. But as you mentioned, and it's something that I've talked about since the movie came out, really, it's the Denzel Washington character, as you so perfectly put it, who really has the story arc here and really learns. I mean, there are some early scenes. This guy that he plays, he's an ambulance-chasing, homophobic, 
opportunist, and he finds his heart through his friendship and through the case representing the Tom Hanks character. But if you go back and look at that film, to me, the most impressive performance of all is the Denzel Washington performance. So let's talk about what this case is really all about. The general public's hatred, our loathing, our fear of homosexuals. And how that climate of hatred and fear translated into the firing of this particular homosexual. My client, Andrew Beckett. Coming up on the next episode of The Best Movies, Robbed of the Gold. These are movies that did not win when they should have. Want to give us a preview? Well, all I would say about this is there are certain cases where I would volunteer to go to the homes of the winners, break in, take the Oscar, and re-engrave <laughs> it and give it to the rightful winner, but I'd go to jail, so I'm not going to do that. But we'll do the next best thing. Yes, we will, Richard Roper. We're going to right the wrongs of Hollywood one podcast episode at a time. The Best Movies is produced in association with the Chicago Sun-Times and Skywave Multimedia. Special thanks to our producer, Brian Altimer and our distribution manager, Brian Ernst. You can read Richard Roper's reviews and guides to this podcast at suntimes.com. For Richard Roper, I'm Ro Khan. See you next time.